Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 76 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 76 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? Well, I'm just going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and my 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 Music fan slash expert slash nerd. And uh, each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show in two parts. First part of the show, talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks and do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part of the show, dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, uh, who are the musicians on the track, whether that be the session musicians or the backup singers or the members of the band, on the history behind the artist that did the song, what studio the song was recorded at, and where that studio was located at, and who produced the song, and uh, also um, the name of the record label the song was released on, where that label is located at, and the peak position the song made up originally on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, and the year month it was released. All that is in the second part of this show. Now, before we went on this week's episode of the podcast, I wanted to give you guys one final reminder about my show. Um, it's this Saturday at the uh, Hotel Cafe on November 2nd from 10 to 1 a.m. Now, again, like this is something really cool because um, nothing at the... There, there isn't anything like this kind of event done before at the Hotel Cafe before where I'm going to have, you know, two hours of the night going to be full of 60 songs I've talked about on this podcast. Nobody's ever done anything like this at the Hotel Cafe before in Hollywood, so it's going to be really cool, so I definitely think you should come out to it. Um, also, you know, if, you ha- if you're listening to this podcast and you're based in L.A. and you haven't met me face-to-face and you want to, like, meet me and just, you know, tell me what you think of my podcast, then, I, then this would be a good opportunity to do that. Um, it's also going to be on my birthday, so as of next week, I'll no longer be a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer. I'll be a 24-year-old songwriter slash producer who's also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. So that's going to be really cool. So, um, you know, I'll have to keep that in mind for future episodes, you know. But, yeah, so um, next this Saturday is my birthday, so it's going to be really good. And, uh, yeah, um, I'll, be, I'll be playing at midnight, and then my friends are going to be on at 11 p.m., and then I'm going to have an opening act on at 10. I um, still don't know the name for them yet, but I'll let you guys know as soon as I find that out. But yeah, so it's going to be really cool. And uh, I can't wait for you guys to uh, see what uh, I'm going to be cooking up for that night. It's going to be so much fun. You're going to have a blast. I really think you should come. And yeah, also, I went and saw, again, Tom Kenny's band uh, last night. And that was a really fun show. Um, you know, I mean, Tom Kenny's band is always phenomenal, the voice of SpongeBob. And uh, hopefully, you know, one day I'll get him on my podcast with uh, Andy because they both want to get on. But, you know, I mean, it was still really cool getting to talk to Andy nonetheless. But, 
you know, I just will really love to get Tom on, but you know, it's just, I feel like the stars going to have to align in order for that to happen. But I think at one point it will happen. I just got to be a little patient and be pretty persistent about it as well. But either way, so, um, let's move on with the rest of this podcast. Alrighty, so let's talk about the history behind this artist, Barbara Lewis, because a lot of you on here are listening to this podcast, and you might not know anything about this specific artist, Barbara Lewis. And again, she is totally, relatively obscure in this day and age. A lot of people nowadays don't really know anything about her. So I'm going to do my best to sort of educate you about her and talk about um, why exactly she's really talked about in the media today and why nobody ever mentions her and why you probably never heard of her. Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that she was one of those many artists in the 60s that had a decent amount of their fair share of hits. But due to financial troubles with her music, now I'm not exactly sure exactly what happened, but also because, you know, things were kind of changing in the de- within the decade and she kind of had a, she was struggling to kind of keep up with the times and stay relevant. You know, when when things were just, when when the music was dramatically changing from the mid-60s to late 60s, um, they decided to drop out of the music business completely, never to be seen or heard from again within the industry. But for a while, she was having hits. And uh, she was promoting those songs by going on TV and lip-syncing her songs and by also doing live shows as well. Um... But one thing to keep in mind about her is that, like what I mentioned in part one in this two-part episode of this podcast, Barbara Lewis is on the same record label as the almighty Aretha Franklin. And check this out. So she was on the same label as Aretha, right? Atlantic Records. And while she was having hits and was popular before Aretha came into prominence, when Aretha became a big star on Atlantic, her entire career was unfortunately eclipsed by her. You know, it's as if her label, the label that she was on, felt as if now if they have a new powerhouse superstar female vocalist with a voice that could punch through walls and somebody that could artistically interpret the songs that she didn't write, they honestly didn't feel like they had a need for for her anymore. You know, they didn't really feel like they wanted Barbara or needed her anymore now that they had Aretha. So because of that, she completely fell off the radar and never really had any big hits after 1967 which is when Aretha was having her big hits you know and I mean Barbara had one top 10 record and two hits that peaked at number 11 and one smaller top 40 I think she had another really small top 40 hit too but anyways but that was pretty much it for her and but her songs have endured over the years and have experienced lasting fame as they were covered by other female artists over the last you know, 20 to 30 years and even 40 years after her songs were hits. But, and even artists today have covered some of her songs, but she unfortunately somewhat dropped off the face of the earth and no longer had a presence in the music industry after her heyday was over. But anyways, now before we get into who covered her songs years after they became hits and exactly what the heck happened to her, well... Let's talk about what the history of her career was like, because when she came about as a songwriter and as an artist, there is no such thing as quote unquote social media. So there was no thing where you had to build up a huge Instagram or Facebook following 
and do sold-out shows and be a verified Spotify artist and get tons and tons of streams before a label even gives you their time of the day. At the time, you know, when she was coming up in the music biz, there are A&R guys slash producers whose jobs were to sign completely unknown talent who weren't famous already and to give them opportunities to go into the studio and record their music and essentially they would pick up the tab meaning they would pay for it until they got signed then their label would essentially pick up the tab you know pay for their sessions for their songs and then while their artists had to pay back the money that the label lent out to them to pay for the studio time and various other things um, you know, and they would do that by selling millions of records. I mean, this is just how record label deals worked. You know, um, you know, and there's different types of record deals, and I honestly don't remember the names of all of them. But that was just a basic idea of how record deal structure kind of worked back in those days. And it, it's still the, the 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 business model hasn't really changed a whole lot, but there's some different things happening right now with that. But anyways, um. This was definitely the case for Barbara Lewis because before she even got signed to Atlantic Records, um, a, a Detroit-based A&R man named Ollie McLaughlin discovered her and got her in the studio to record her first album in which she was able to get a distribution deal with Atlantic Records You know, once she went in the studio with uh, Ollie McLaughlin to record her first album. And thus he was able to sign her you know, to Atlantic. And let's talk about that for a minute because some of you out there probably have no clue on McLaughlin was and the impact he had on the music industry at the time. Well, the best way to describe him is that he was arguably the most commercially successful producer based in Detroit that had absolutely nothing to do with Motown. Yep, you heard it correctly. Ollie was an extremely influential producer based in Detroit at the time, but he never really wanted to work for Motown because he had connections with other major labels besides Motown. For example, Atlantic Records. And he also had the ability to form his own labels and have success without the Hitsville USA establishment. Um, you know, one thing that uh, Alan McLaughlin did, uh, you know, when he was uh, when he was like, uh, you know, forming his record labels, is that he actually named the record labels he formed, uh, you know, from his kids. You know, I think he had he had some daughters, and Karen was one of his daughters, and I think Carla was one of his daughters, and. He actually named the labels that he was uh, forming off of his kids, you know, and uh, a, a couple of those records got distributed by Atlantic. But he also had his hand in discovering some other artists that would later go on to have huge careers in their own right. For example, Del Shannon. Now, if you don't know who Del Shannon is, don't worry, because I'll definitely cover him in my podcast. Um, but out of all the acts that Ollie had a hand in, as far as him, him exclusively like managing and producing, um, Barbara Lewis was his most commercially successful signing. With her, he had four top 40 hits. Actually, I think five. Take that back. But with one top 10 record and two hits that peaked at number 11 and two smaller top 40 hits. And as a producer, and he produced those songs and he co-produced them as well. And also, Ollie had an upper hand in the industry at, at, at the time because he was a DJ in a couple of major Detroit AM radio stations. And again, this was back when radio was king and DJs were very influential in making those songs become hits. And those radio stations that he worked, worked for include WHRW and WAAM. And by the way, Ollie also used a lot of uh, musicians who worked on a lot of different Motown records um, for his songs. 
and uh, you know, because he recorded in both Chicago and Detroit. Um, but anyways, um, Ollie McLaughlin had connections with Atlantic Records, and that's how he was able to get Barbara Lewis signed to to this to label. But their first ever hit record done together was actually recorded independently, probably self-funded by Ollie himself. And while we're at it, let's talk about the history behind this specific song, Hello Stranger, because this was Barbara's first ever hit single. And as you, as already established, she wrote the song herself. And by the way, I want to reiterate to you guys how rare it was back in those days for a singer, a female singer to write her own songs. I mean, it wasn't common. I mean, there were a few, but trust me, it wasn't that common for a female singer to write her own songs, you know, and it wouldn't become like a mainstream thing until the early 70s. But you know, it's one of those things where it's like there were way more female singers at this time who didn't write their own tunes versus, uh, you know, singers, female singers that did, you know, write their own songs. I mean, Connie Francis and Leslie Gordon, Skeeter Davis, they never, n- rarely wrote their own songs. You know, they always had other people writing songs for them. But, but on the contrary with Barbara Lewis, she wrote this song herself, but one might wonder exactly where she got the idea to use the song's title and the starting point of the song. You know, where, where, where did she come up with the idea of, you know, Hello Stranger? And um, I know, like, this title might seem a little weird to you because it's one of those things where it's like you don't really hear people saying, hey, Hello Stranger, how you doing? You don't, you don't really hear people saying that today. Um, but it's mainly because, you know, Hello Stranger was a common phrase that people used back then quite frequently. But, you know, the the phrase Hello Stranger is rarely heard today. You're not going to really hear that many people say that, you know, in today's world. You know, it's just one of those old worn out phrases that doesn't really, you know, it's not really relevant today. But that's just one. I just want to let you know that just in case. You know, you might be a little bit um, weirded out by the phrase because you might have never heard it before um, if you're around my age. But anyways, um, what's interesting is that she actually got the idea to use the phrase from when she used to do a sh- shows with her dad in Detroit. And her dad used to tell people that all, all the time when greeting friends and relatives he hasn't seen in a very long time because her dad was a musician too. And by the way, Barbara Lewis was from Detroit, and that's when, and that is how she met Ollie McLaughlin because they were both from the same city, and uh, yeah, and you know that's how they met each other. Um, but yeah, so uh, Barbara's dad used to tell people, "Hey, hello, stranger, how you doing?" Whenever he when whenever he would see people who he hasn't seen in a long time, and she decided to take that phrase and craft a love song story around it. And her and Ollie McLaughlin recorded the song at Chess Studios in Chicago, with more than likely with Ron Malo engineering the session. Now, a lot of you on here are probably wondering who the heck did those incredible backup vocals on this song, and who played that song's tasty organ. Well, the moment this is the moment you've all been waiting for, you know, because I haven't really talked about this yet, but I'm going to talk about it right now. The main backup vocals in the song were done by a local Chicago vocal group called the Dells. And they actually had some very big hits in the 50s, but at the time, their career was on a total downswing. Um, they would have some modest R&B hits in the, uh, the, er, the, the, um, the mid-60s, but their, their career wouldn't pick up again until the very end of the 60s, like in 1968 or in 69. That's when they just you know took off, and that's when they were becoming huge 
But at this time, you know, they were not, they were, we weren't quite there yet. So they took whatever paying gigs they can get and sang backup for Barbara Lewis on the song. And by the way, the organ on this song, which I'm not, I'm not quite sure exactly who, what kind of organ he's playing, but it sounds like a Hammond B3. Um, the organ in the song is played by a guy named John Young. And the track took 13 takes for it to be complete. But once the session was over and the Dells were hearing the song in playback, one of them, one of the members of that group, I'm pretty sure it was Chuck Barksdale, uh, jumped up and down and said, this is a hit, man, this is a hit. But at the time, Barbara had no idea whether or not the song was going to be a hit because at the time it was pretty much all new to her. When Ollie flew to New York to pitch the song to Ahmet Erdogan, again, head of Atlantic Records, just in case you didn't know, he had already pitched them two Barbara's previous singles before this one. And when he presented the record to Amit, he they selected Hello Stranger as their first single release on Atlantic. But he was at fir- first a little resistant because of the song's unconventional song structure. Again, this was one of those rare songs that the title only appears once in the song, but that's it. But they gave in and they released it in a shot at the top 10 in the spring, early summer of 1963 and Atlantic added her to their roster and released her first album in which she wrote every single song on there and by the way let's talk about before we before we end this podcast let's talk about Atlantic Records for a little bit because I haven't talked about them in a long time um, Atlantic was one of the probably one of the biggest ri- ri- African-American rhythm and blues labels at the time and they were formed by a Turkish guy and a Jewish guy Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler and uh, for th- all throughout the 50s, they were, you know, selling incredible amounts of records, doing just straight rhythm and blues, you know, with uh, with the black artists at that time. And, uh, you know, once the 50s kind of turned into the 60s, they kind of made the transition from rhythm and blues to soul once they started, you know, putting out records by the Drifters and Benny King. And then, and this was especially apparent when they signed people like Solomon Burke. And for most of the f- 50s um most of the atlantic records were recordings were done in new york in their own studios atlantic studios but once the 50s kind of turned into the 60s um they started working with other labels like stacks and they started recording putting out songs that were done in memphis and they eventually also went down the muscle shoals alabama um you know so they're again one of those labels where they mo well the cream of the crop atlantic stuff was being done in new york they also went down to Memphis for the stacks and when they had a distribution deal with them and Muscle Shoals, Alabama, um, you know, and for a while, you know, Atlantic, there was the Atlantic label where they held a rhythm and blues artist. And then there was the Echo label. The Echo label was a subsidiary of Atlantic. And that label was specifically for the white artists um, because 90 percent of the artists on Atlantic were black and they were doing rhythm and blues and soul. Whereas the Echo label was all but was more for the white artists like Sonny and Cher and Bobby Darin and Vanilla Fudge and just Buffalo Springfield. That that the Echo label was specifically for um, you know, for the white pop artists or the rock artists at that time. You know, and they were also overseen by both uh, you know, Jerry Wexler and Ahmet Erdogan. So, um, you know, but then eventually, you know, Atlantic kind of moved away from just being a black R&B soul label. And they started, you know, signing artists like Led Zeppelin and the Rascals. And, you know, Rascals obviously came first and then Led Zeppelin came afterwards. But they kind of moved away from just being an R&B soul label when the 60s kind of turned into the 70s. But um, there were no covers 
check this out. So when Atlantic released her first album for Barbara Lewis, um, she wrote every single song on there. That's right. There were no covers of other people's songs besides her on the album. And I don't think this happened again until 1966 and 67 with Laura Nero. But those albums, you know, they didn't really do so well commercially. And it wasn't until Tapestry by Carol King came out in which that was a huge hit album that became a landmark classic in which they, the credited female artist wrote every single song on the album. But that didn't come out until 1971. So this might have been one of the first times a female artist not only wrote her first big hit, but wrote every single song off of her first album and didn't do any covers of anybody else's songs. Now, that's really cool. I really got to hand it to her for doing that and being one of the first artists to ever do that. I think Doris Troy might have been right right up there with her. But anyways, um, since she since since she became an Atlantic artist, um, after Barbara after uh, Hello Stranger became a hit, um, you know she the hits were starting to dry up for her. She couldn't really come up with a big follow up hit record. So she decided to leave Chicago behind, and she figured, hey, I'm on Atlantic Records, which and that means that I have full access to New York songwriters, aka the writers that worked in the Brill Building, and really good New York studio musicians, and as well as Atlantic's premier eight-track recording studio. So, you know, she figured like, okay, so I can either put out my own songs and not have too much success, or I can record songs by some of these, these by written by some of these really good Brill Building songwriters, and I can, you know, move to New York and work with, uh, a, with, a, with an A&R man in, based working for Atlantic Records at the time, you know, and that's exactly what she did. Um, you know, she decided she wanted to g- get out of Chicago, move to New York, and work with a uh, A&R guy for Atlantic and record songs written by Brill Building songwriters, in which Atlantic had access to at that time, and record in uh, Atlantic's 8-track uh, recording facilities, you know, which were still pretty state-of-the-art at that time. Um, so, so, anyways, so when she she did this after a few years, after after Hello Stranger in 1965, and, uh, you know, she, uh, she, she did that, and she ha- managed to have some pretty huge success with doing this. And uh, she recorded quite a few songs written by Brill Building songwriters, and all of them recorded at Atlantic Studios in New York using um, the cream of the crop New York studio musicians. And again, she kind of moved on from being in Chicago. Um, but yeah, um, at the time when this was happening, she was working with a, a A&R man slash songwriter that was working for Atlantic at the time named Burt Burns. And, and again, if that name doesn't sound familiar to you, that's okay. I'll do a full episode on him for my podcast soon enough. So you, if, you, if this is your first time hearing the name Burt Burns, then that's okay because I will educate you more on him in a future episode of this podcast if you don't know who he is or don't know anything about him. But anyways, um, he co-produced her next two almost top ten hits and as well as her next smaller top 40 hit, you know. And while things seemed to be going well for her, once the heads of Atlantic became aware of Aretha and they signed her, and again, you know, she was on different label before she was on Atlantic, and then, you know, they became a, once they became aware of her and they signed Aretha, this is when things kind of came all crashing down for her. Um, Aretha's first Atlantic single was released in February of 1967. 
and Barbara's last top 40 hit as an artist that she would ever have was released in the late summer, early fall of 1966. At least that's when it was on the charts. It might have been released a few months earlier. And as you can see, when things slowed down for Barbara, Aretha stepped in for her and almost took the place of Barbara as Atlantic's new biggest female superstar slash soul diva. And when this happened, Barbara never really recovered from it and went into complete obscurity after this happened. Although she did have lunch with Sharon Tate and her friends the morning of the in, of, of the of their infamous murders done by Charles Vanson and his family, which I think that's pretty interesting. But anyways, um, you know, when this happened, like she completely dropped out. Nobody ever really heard or heard from her again, or she never she totally you know dropped off the face of the earth and the public eye too so much that when Yvonne Element recut Hello Stranger in the late seventies disco era, and she had a pretty big hit with it. Um, you know, with her redo of the, of the song that she wrote, no, nobody, not even the people closest to Barbara, and this included her publisher and manager, by the way, could track her down and send her a royalty check that was due to her for the song that she wrote with, um, you know, with, uh, that she wrote that she, that Levon Element covered and had a huge hit with, you know, and it wasn't until Casey Kasem, you know, uh, was able to track her down, let her know that what happened with her hit song, let her know, hey, someone covered it, had a big hit with it. But anyways, um, the cool here, the couple of things about Barbara Lewis about her music before I wrap up this episode. Um, Jody Miller and Debbie Boone have covered "Baby I'm Yours," and uh, you know, also one really cool modern artist today that has uh, covered "Baby I'm Yours." You know, um, and not a long time ago, but it's still pretty relevant. In 2006, the Arctic Monkeys actually covered um, one of her songs. And uh, one of her songs is also used in the movie um, Moonflight. And Arctic Monkeys covered Baby I'm Yours as the B-side um, of one of, her, one of their singles. And, uh, you know, Baby I'm Yours is also used in the Bridge of Madison Country. And Hello Stranger was used in the soundtrack of the movie Moonflight. So... Um, as far as what she's doing right now, she's not, she's retired. She's not performing anymore, um, due to health issues, but you know, I mean, this is kind of how things go with a lot of, uh, different songwriter artists from this time period. I mean, you know, they're, they're older now, so a lot of them don't always are actively out there performing. You know, a lot of them are kind of retired, so it's really cool to, if I, if I were to get to talk to one of these people, it's very a very special, very awesome opportunity to be able to get to talk to them, you know, because, I mean, you're not always going to have the opportunity to see these people live performing because a lot of them don't do that anymore, as you can already tell. So that concludes part two of episode number 76 of my 60 Music Podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and uh, if you found out some really cool and interesting facts about um, Barbara Lewis that you didn't already know from uh, listening to this episode of this podcast. And uh, if you want to tell me that, uh, please let me know by emailing me at samltwillie at iCloud.com. And uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at uh, iHeartOldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. And uh, yeah, so also um, a couple, like just, just routine things I usually tell, let you guys know at the end of every episode of this podcast. Um, one of them is that if you want to listen to all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some ones I've mentioned in the interview episodes of my podcast, so you can check out the official Spotify playlist for this podcast. It's on there, and the link to that is in the description of this episode of this podcast. 
Um, you know, I really appreciate it. if you can check that out and let me know what you think of uh, the songs that I've done on that show so far. And yeah, so and also um, another thing you can do is that if you don't have Spotify, and you still want to listen to the songs I've talked about on my show so far. You can check out the official YouTube playlist for my podcast. And that's also in the description of this episode of this podcast as well. Uh, there you'll find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some ones I've done in my uh, interview episodes. There's only, I'm pretty sure there's only a couple songs that are, that are the difference between both, but they should be pretty much the same. But yeah, so that's for anybody who don't, doesn't have Spotify. And another thing you can check out is the official Redbubble merchandise page for this podcast. There you'll find all of um, my, uh, you know, my merchandise that I have for this show. Um, it's I have a super cool logo that I had someone else design, but I came up with the idea of it. It's basically the name of my podcast and keep on trucking tight I font with uh the name I uh, sorry, it's the catchphrase I say at the end of every episode and keep on trucking tight I font and with my name and my podcast on the bottom. So um really appreciate it. if you can check that out. Let me know what you think of the items in the store and uh if there's anything, you know, if you want to purchase anything, please let me know. But if not, it's fine. I at least like some feedback on, you know, the prices of each item in the store, plus, you know, what you think of the logo as well. But yeah, so uh, also um, just a reminder, um, we're coming up on episode 80. So that means that I'm probably going to do another interview episode on my podcast as well. I'm probably going to be talking to, um, you know, Mark Barkin, uh, the songwriter from The Real Building. That should be a really fun episode. No. And I'll work on that pretty soon. I'll let you guys know when that when the when I'm uh, when I'm when I'm about to interview him. But it'll probably be for episode eighty. It might be before Thanksgiving. Might be after. I'm not really sure. But we'll figure that one out. But yeah, so it's gonna be that's gonna be a really cool interview episode. I'll let you guys know when that happens. And also, a reminder for you guys: um, my birthday show um, is gonna be this Saturday, November second, at the Hotel Cafe. Um, there's going to be an opening act on a 10. I'm not sure if they're going to do any 60s songs. They might not. I'll have to see. But, um, and then my friends are going to be on 11. They're going to be doing some of my favorite 60s songs that I handpicked specifically for them and I arranged specifically for them. And my, I'm going to be on at 11, at midnight. So my friends are going to be on at 11 and I'm going to be on at midnight and it's going to be great. And, uh, as of next week, I'll be a 24 year old. So it's going to be on my birthday. So, you know, uh, you guys can wish me happy birthday if you choose to do so. But yeah, so yeah, if you're in LA and you and you're free that night and you want to come meet me and support my podcast further in person, I really appreciate it if you can do that. It's ten dollars, you know. And also, if you're thinking about driving there, I wouldn't suggest driving there because the parking, finding parking there is pretty much impossible. So I'd highly suggest you either take public transit or you take Uber or Lyft to the venue. I'd really, that's, that's, that's your, honestly your best bet as of right now. But yeah, so anyway, so um, I'm Sam Williams, and uh, thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Till next week, police! Keep things groovy. Keep things groovy.